You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. And what we've been doing this semester is we've been working our whole, this whole semester through the book of Proverbs, trying to understand what wisdom is from this Old Testament book. And we've tried to say each week that wisdom is skill at life in the gray areas. Like when when the black and white rules don't apply to life, which is 95% of your life, wisdom is knowing how to navigate that skillfully. And tonight we're going to take a look at probably the greatest threat to wisdom, which is pride. Nothing has the ability to suffocate the potential of you being wise like pride. So let's look at it. We're going to look at one just kind of foundational proverb, and then we'll jump and look at the other, the other ones in your handout. But Proverbs 11.2 says this. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. So this is God's word. Let me pray. I'm going to raise this a hair. There we go. I'll pray. Then we'll jump in and talk about it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Your word, thank you for our time together tonight. I pray that you would do as you always do, that you would send your spirit and that you would comfort the afflicted and that you would afflict the comfortable. Open up our eyes and unclog our ears that we might see and behold the glory of who you really are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Back in October, RUF threw this big alumni party. Some of y'all were there. We had all these alumni come in. It was like this mega awesome throwdown fest. But the worst thing about big awesome mega throwdown fests is the cleanup afterward. And I was part of the cleanup team. And we had maybe 30 jugs of leftover lemonade and sweet tea afterward. Just like lots of it. And so I uh, didn't know what to do with it. I figured like we could maybe reuse this. So I just backed up my car and opened up the trunk and had somebody just help me kind of load up my trunk with 30 things of half open, some of it used, some of it not open, lemonade and sweet tea, closed the trunk, and then I went about my life and forgot about it for like weeks. And apparently, not all of the sweet tea that had been opened was sealed tightly. So a lot of sweet tea leaked and got out into the fabric of the lining of my trunk. And you would think that would be a sugary, sweet, aromatic smell. It's not. Uh, I think there was some form of fermentation that happened because it was so rancid. It was in my trunk. And whenever I opened up my door to get into my car, I was hit with like this wall of pungent rancid, slightly fermented sweet tea vomit smell. It was not pleasant. Thankfully, um, I don't really care that much about smells, and so I just drove my car and went about my life for like weeks after the smell set in. And, you know, very thankful, uh, the smell eventually kind of went away. It just sort of, I don't know, evaporated, faded away on its own. And uh, I remember this was uh, later that semester, I went to pick up Mitchell Marino for lunch, who's the guy that normally gives announcements, and he gets in my car, and he's like, dude, 
what is wrong with your car? It's like rolling down the window, gagging. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, my car still smells? It still smells? And he's like choking off to the side. Now, how do you explain two people's radically different experience of my car? Here's how you explain it. I had gotten accustomed to the smell. It just became, it felt very natural to me. So much so, I didn't even smell it anymore. It felt very familiar, even though it was toxic and it was probably killing brain cells. I did not even know that it was there. I'd become so familiar with it. And I begin that way because uh, in the same way our pride is something that you and I feel very comfortable with. We feel very natural in it. It feels very familiar to us. And yet it's toxic and it's destructive. And if we don't get a handle on it, we have no shot at being wise. We have to have a deeper, richer understanding of our pride if we have any shot of being wise. And so what I want to do tonight is look at a couple problems with y'all to look at what it is, what pride is, what it does, and then what to do about it. So those are our big kind of three ideas I want to look at with you tonight. What it is, what it does, what to do about it. First, what is pride? What is it? Well, um... I want to talk about two different features of pride. The first feature of pride I want to talk about is this. That pride is you thinking too highly of yourself. That's one way you can say what, one aspect of what pride is. Pride is you thinking of yourself too highly. Look at, um, again, Proverbs 11.2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. And this proverb is just setting up the assumption that pride is foolish and humility is wise. But what does it look like if you're a foolish, prideful person? Okay, well, look at, look at uh, 11, 12. How do you treat other people if that's you? Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. So here's a picture of somebody that's belittling other people, literally to make other people feel small, to um, put them down. Why would anybody feel the need to belittle somebody? It's, it's only if they have an inflated view of themselves. If they have a superior view of themselves, then they look down on and put down on other people. And uh, this may come, you know, to have an inflated view of yourself, we typically think that's just brash, swaggering personalities like Kanye. But I want you to know, um, you can be just as prideful and you can be the quiet, smug type. You know, the April Ludgates of the world for my Parks and Rec people. Or the the Angelas of the world, if you've seen the show, The Office. Uh, Cynical, quiet disdain for other people. That is just as much of a form of a self, uh, a sense of superiority to other people. And if you think about it, we can feel support superior to other people for a million different reasons. Today's a big day in our country, and so let's just think about our own political pride. You can have, you can have political pride. You can say, well, I'm, I'm a conservative. I'm not like those progressive, uh, PC, uh, socialist hippies. Or you can say, uh, I'm a liberal. I'm not like those traditional, bigoted conservatives. You can have political pride. See, it it works on both sides. Uh, You can have uh, religious pride. You know, I'm a Christian. I'm not like those hardened, immoral atheists. 
And you can be an atheist and say, well, I'm an atheist, and I'm thankful that I'm not like those uh, backwoods, superstitious, religious idiots. You can have religious pride. You can have social pride. You know, I don't drink. I'm not one of those out-of-control, hedonistic pagans on campus. You can say, uh, yeah, I do drink. I'm not like those boring losers that don't drink. Uh, you can have, uh, I mean, we have dietary pride in our culture. I shop at Whole Foods. I only eat local, organic, green items. And people who eat at McDonald's are disgusting. And you can say, ham, hey, yeah, I eat at McDonald's and Taco Bell, and I don't eat whatever those granola weirdos are eating over there. So you can see, we have, we have pride. It's infected us all the way through. And so here's the question for you. What is it about you that makes you think, this thing about me is what makes me special? This thing about me is what makes me better? This is what makes me stand out and not like those people? Whatever that thing is, you're putting your finger on your pride. That is you thinking of yourself too highly. But there's a second aspect of pride, which is you thinking about yourself too much. Look at um, Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. This is somebody that believes everything that they think. And you can't believe everything that you think unless you're hyper aware of what you're always thinking. Pride is essentially somebody that's just always thinking about themselves. Pride is somebody that has a devoted concentration on themselves. Pride is yourself uh, drawing attention to itself all the time. So in other words, uh, th- this, is, this is you always asking the question, you know, how am I doing? How do I look? How do these people uh, receive me? What do these people think about me? Are these people impressed with me? Do these people like me? How am I doing today? Always asking yourself the question, how do I compare with them? How do I size up to them? What do they have that I don't? It's, it's constant competition, constant comparison, constant uh, self-evaluation. It's the self just constantly drawing attention to itself. And Tim Keller, who's a famous uh, pastor up in New York City, he says this, that your body parts don't call attention to themselves unless something's wrong with them. Your body parts don't call attention to themselves unless something's wrong with them. So think about it. I go home at the end of the day, and I'm greeted by my lovely wife, Catherine, over there. And she says, hey, honey, you know, how was your day? And I say, Catherine, it was amazing. My elbows worked incredibly today. Just the bending action I got out of these elbows was just insane. I would never draw attention to my elbows unless there was something wrong with them. You don't talk about your elbows. You don't talk about your. You don't draw attention to your elbows unless there's something wrong with them. But think about our egos. Our egos are always drawing attention to themselves, like all the time. You can't make it through like an hour without thinking, "How does that person think about me? Uh, my feelings were hurt by that person. Uh, how did that person receive me?" And so your ego is just always calling out attention to itself, which means that there's something very, very wrong with us. That our sense of self is seriously wounded, seriously messed up. Pride is 
devoted concentration on yourself, which means that, you know, in our culture, um, low self-esteem means, you have a, think, means that you have a low view of yourself. You would never think of that person as prideful. And yet when you have a biblical understanding of pride, somebody that has low self-esteem who thinks, I'm always a failure, uh, these people never like me, uh, I can do nothing right, that's you still concentrating on yourself all the time. And so you may not come off as an overtly prideful person like a Walter White type. You may come across as like a shy uh, Debbie Downer type. But both of them have the same root problem, devoted concentration on the self. That's what pride is. It is the, it's the toxic fumes of self-promotion and self-absorption. And it all feels so natural to us. This is just home base for us. But what do we do about it? Uh, or rather, uh, what does it do to us? What does it do? Uh, what does it do if we don't do a thorough cleaning of it? Uh, well, look at 1618. This is our second point, what it does. It says in 1618, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If you imagine a parade... And the person leading the parade is pride, and everything in the train is carnage and destruction. That's the image. Wherever pride comes, what follows is destruction. Okay, but what does that look like practically? Again, two ideas that I want to flesh out of what it looks like to practically, for pride to practically be destructive. Here's the first way that pride is destructive. It keeps you out of touch with reality. Pride keeps you out of touch with reality. Let me, let me give you three quick Proverbs to look at. Look at 12.1. It says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Isn't that hilarious that that's in the Bible? Whoever hates reproof is stupid. Look at Proverbs 12.15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 13.1. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. There's a thousand other, maybe not a thousand, there's a lot more Proverbs that I could mention, but the point is basically clear. A prideful person cannot hear criticism. Prideful person cannot hear critique. Think about it. If you're a prideful person and someone criticizes you or critiques you or challenges you or points out something about you that's not flattering, if you're prideful that comes to you as a threat. It threatens your sense of self. And so this inner lawyer gets activated inside of you where now you have to start defending yourself. You start making excuses. You start blaming other people. What are you doing? That is you saying, I've got to get out from under this because it's threatening my sense of self. I must see myself as a good person. I must see myself as somebody that's better than those people. I must see myself as somebody that would not do what you're saying that I'm capable of doing. And so you can't hear criticism. Because criticism becomes a frontal assault on your very identity. Some of you know we have a um, five-year-old daughter, Zoe Kate. And I remember this a few weeks ago. I was letting her play Angry Birds on the iPad, sitting next to her on the couch. And you're familiar with how Angry Birds works. There's this big slingshot, and you kind of pull back a bird, and you release it, and it flies, and it hits some pigs and some stuff. So Zoe Kate's doing that, but she's not understanding the physics of it, that you have to pull it down in order for it to go up. 
She's thinking, if I pull it up, it'll go up. But of course, when you pull a slingshot up, it just drills the bird into the ground. And I'm sitting there, and I'm watching her do this, and I'm, I'm fighting the instinct to get involved because I'm saying, she's, just, she's learning how to play. She's having fun. She, maybe she thinks this is what the game is. And after 30 times of just watching her drill the bird into the ground over and over, I couldn't take it anymore, so I take the iPad from her. It's like, let me show you how to do it. That's not how you play this game. And she takes it back from me, and she says, no, I can do it. I can do it myself. Okay. Do it yourself. And I just continue to watch this horrible display of birds getting pounded into the ground. And I think that is a picture of what it's like for you and me if we can't accept criticism. If, if, if somebody critiques you and you say to them, I, I'm not interested, or it flares this defensive thing in you, that person then just gets to watch you, this horrible display of your life making decisions that are bad and mistakes over and over and over and over because you're making decisions that are out of touch with reality about yourself and that always brings about destruction. It is always going to introduce destruction into your life if you're making decisions when you don't know everything about yourself. And if you can't hear what's really true about yourself, you're always going to make bad decisions. So you have to ask yourself this question. Uh, can you admit your weakness? Can you admit when you've done wrong? Do you feel like you have to maintain this image of being something that looks like something? You've got to maintain that at all costs. Uh, do you ever invite criticism into your life? Just ask close friends to critique you, evaluate you. If you say no to any of that, then you're introducing destruction into your life. It keeps you out of touch with reality. And here's the second thing that pride does. It keeps you out of touch with God. It disconnects you from God himself. Look at um, Proverbs 15, 25. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but he maintains the widow's boundaries. The Bible elsewhere says, I oppose the proud. I oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. Why does God oppose the proud? Well, um, there's a great chapter that's devoted just to pride in C.S. Lewis's great book, uh, Mere Christianity. There's a chapter on it called The Great Sin. And I want to read you just a couple of uh, sentences from this. He says this. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. And then here's the sentence. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Pride goes against the very fabric of God's being. If you're the kind of person that says, I have to feel superior to those people, uh, I'm totally justified in blasting those people. I, I, I must maintain this image that I'm good. If that's you, 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 are, you stand opposed to the very fabric of God, of who he is in his being. Which shows us that pride means that our biggest problem is something inside of us. 
that our hearts are literally bent away from God and away from life everlasting, and they're bent towards destruction and towards hell itself. That's where our hearts are bent. So what do we do about it then? This is the last question. What do we do if this is the way that we're just bent? This feels so natural to us. Well, uh, look at Proverbs 13, sorry, 15:33. It says, "The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, but hum- and humility comes before honor." So it's another parade image. Just like you've got the parade with pride at the front and destruction in the back, now you've got another parade where humility is at the front and honor is at the back. And it's really interesting. The word honor that's used here is the word that is in Hebrew usually translated glory, which means weightiness, being substantial. It's what makes somebody really important and matter. And this is saying... The humble people are those people that actually are the most substantial types of people, which is profound because if you're humble, this means you don't care about being important to begin with. The irony of this, the paradox of this, is if you want to be someone that truly matters, then stop caring about being somebody that truly matters. You want to be, some, you want to be someone that's substantial, that has weight to you, that don't care about being somebody that's substantial. Uh, the, best, the best example that I could think of that illustrated this idea was from the movie Eight Mile. Uh, you remember this movie. Some of you have heard me maybe reference this before. Eminem, B-Rabbit, as his character is in the, in the movie. As, as you know, familiar with the movie, the, the, there, are a, um, there are these freestyle rap battles. And that sounded so horrible. Freestyle rap battles where two guys get up, two rappers get up, and basically the point is to communicate, here's why I'm the man and this guy sucks. That's kind of the point, and you freestyle do it. And so what happens at the very end, Eminem, B-Rabbit, has this kind of final turn on the mic, and instead of getting on the mic and saying, this guy's a failure, this guy's a tool, he does something completely different. And I want to read a couple of lines that he says. (laughs) This is going to be a little choppy because it's highly edited for your young ears sake but here's what he says at the end this guy ain't no MC I know everything he's got to say against me I am white I am a bum I do live in a trailer with my mom my boy future is an Uncle Tom I do got a dumb friend named Cheddar Bob who shoots himself in the leg with his own gun I did get jumped by all six of you chumps and that's all that I can communicate from that song so that's what he's basically saying and scene but what does he do with this song is he's just throwing himself under the bus He gets on the mic, and at the end he says, okay, tell them something they don't already know now. And what happens? You have two rappers. One that stood up and said about B-Rabbit, I'm the man, he sucks. And that's just pride. And he loses, and everyone forgets about him because it's just so boring. We've heard that song a million times already. We've heard that story a million times. Pride is boring. And B-Rabbit gets on the mic and he says, you know what? I do suck. I am a mess. Here's what's wrong with me. Humble. And it's so unique and it's so refreshing, he wins. And the crowd bestows him with honor. Humility comes before honor. 
So, uh, you want to be the man? Then stop caring about being the man. You want to be somebody that's really important and different? You want to be different? You know what's different? Somebody who doesn't care about being different. Someone who's indifferent to being different. You want to win at life? Then stop caring about winning. That's humility. But of course, that's just so much easier said than done. How do you get that? How do you get humility? The only way that I know how to offer you humility is one thing. For you to stand in faith before the cross of Jesus. That's how you get it. You stand in faith before the cross of Jesus. What what is the cross? The cross is the climax of this big story in the Bible that tells you that God left the heights of heaven and came down to the lowest place on earth to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. I mean, think about it. Jesus was born in a barn. He was not born in a palace in some important city. He was born in some shack in an obscure village. And as he lived his life, he he grew up as a homeless peasant. And he refused to associate with the political powers of his day, with with the powerful social networks of his day. He refused to be involved with that. And then he was crucified and died on a cross before his life was... even halfway over. Why? Why would he do that? Well, think about it. Let's say he came as a big, strong, intellectual philosopher and he had this really sophisticated philosophical system. Well, then only the philosophically or the intellectually strong could get it. And he could have come as as a strong moral teacher and said, here is the way to live. Live like me and then you will be blessed. And then only the morally strong would get it. But he didn't come as someone who was strong. He came as someone who was weak. He came as someone with humility. So that what he offered, salvation, he made available to everyone. He became weak to offer it to everyone. And because his salvation is available not just to the elite or to the special or to the devoted or to the strong, but to everyone, that alone is what begins to erode your pride if you buy into it. It erodes your pride because the cross tells you you're not the exception to the human race. You're not special. You stand before the cross of Jesus in need of grace like everybody else. We're all in the same playing field. And so the deacons at your church and hookers stand before the cross of Jesus on the same level playing field in need of grace. Girls that are sleeping around on this campus and small group leaders both stand before the cross of Jesus in need of grace. Frat stars that are rocking out cocaine and RUF campus ministers. Both stand before the cross of Jesus on level footing. Both in need of grace. That's what the cross does. It erodes. It's the only thing that can do surgery on your pride. It's the only thing that can say, I'm, I'm no better than anybody else. We all are in need of grace at the same The same thing is that you can't stand before the cross of Jesus and say, it's my niceness that makes me better than other people. It's my work ethic that makes me better than other people. It's my grades that makes me better than other people. It's that I don't drink and I don't sleep around and I don't do X, Y, and Z. That's what makes me better than other people. You can't say that anymore. You can't believe that anymore if you stand before the cross of Jesus in faith. 
because it tells you we're all in need of grace and nobody needs it anymore. In fact, the best things about you, Jesus had to die for. The best things about you required blood to atone for. That destroys your pride. And if you're going to be a Christian and say, I need Jesus to be my savior, if you're going to stand before the cross like every other sinner, then you're going to have to admit something about yourself. You're going to have to admit, because it took Jesus to die for me, this means that I'm a sinner. This means that I'm evil. This means that I'm flawed. This means that I'm a moral failure. To accept grace means that you have to admit that you needed grace. Think about this. Let's say this Christmas, 2016, I, because I'm friends with you, I got you a present, wrapped present, and you get it, and you're like, oh, this is sweet of you. You didn't have to do this. And you get it, and you unwrap it, and it's a bottle of mouthwash. If you accept it and say, thank you, I needed this, you're saying about yourself, I have really bad breath. Thank you. There are some gifts that you cannot receive unless you're willing to take the insult that comes with it. And the gospel is the same way. You cannot receive Jesus by faith. You cannot accept him as your savior unless you are willing to admit by doing so, I'm in desperate need of his grace. I'm a sinner on a trajectory towards hell. I, I, I am lost I am evil born in sin. But if you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, that is just so insulting. I can do life on my own without, I mean, I can be good without needing Jesus. This feels so insulting to have to say this about myself. That's okay. That, that just shows you you don't have the humility yet to receive this. You don't have the humility. If everything's resisting, pushing this, that just shows you that there's still pride blocking you. We just sang this. Uh, our, the second song we sang tonight was Come Ye Sinners. And it's clunky old language, but one of the lines that I've always loved says this. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Which is a clunky old way of saying the only thing he requires is for you to feel your need. All you need is need, in other words. All you need is need. That's basically what it is. All you need is nothing. All you need is need. But we don't like need because we're so proud. But if you have need, the gospel is available. Now, I, I want to end with this. Uh, we could end here, but I want to give you just a couple of quick practical helps before we're done. Uh, because fighting your pride requires a kind of a long-term you know, care plan. If you can take practical steps to begin starving your pride and feeding your humility. And so what I want to do is I want to give you three quick phrases that I've picked up along the way that have been really helpful for me to engage in fighting my own pride, starving my pride, and feeding my humility. Three quick phrases, and then we're done. Here's the first phrase. Whatever humbles you is your friend. Whatever humbles you is your friend. I don't know if you've seen the show Seinfeld, but one of my favorite episodes is, if you remember, when George kind of hits rock bottom in life, and he begins to realize every decision I've ever made has been wrong. 
Every impulse, every instinct down to what I order for food at a restaurant, to what I wear, it's always been wrong. And so he has this epiphany. That means the opposite must be right. And so he moves out into life with this new mindset of thinking, I'm going to do the exact opposite of every instinct I have. And he does it throughout the show, and his life begins to work out beautifully for him and just kind of proves his point. But that same principle is true spiritually. Every instinct you have is wrong because every instinct in you tells you whatever strokes your pride is your friend, whatever humbles you is your enemy, and it's the opposite. Whatever humbles you is your friend, whatever strokes your pride is your enemy. So um, you're overlooked for something, uh, you're not recognized for something, and you feel that sting, that is God's gift to you, to humble you, to draw you into deeper dependence upon him. So you, you look like a complete fool in front of a bunch of people, that is God's gift to you, to humble you. It's your friend that he's sending you, to humble you and to draw you into a life of freedom. Whatever humbles you is your friend. That's the first phrase. Here's the second phrase. I don't have to have my way. I don't have to have my way. You know, I'm going down the road in traffic, and I get so angry at the cars on the road because my heart is screaming, I have to have my way, which my way is y'all get out of the way so I can get to where I'm trying to get. I have to have my way. And when I catch myself and I stop and I say, no, that's not true. I don't have to have my way. That's a lie. And that's me starving my pride and feeding my humility. I don't have to have my way. Or um, I get agitated in the grocery store because I get in a line to check out. And I think all these other people that I'm in line with were kind of on the same pace. And then I begin to realize they're going ahead of me a lot faster. And they're getting through and I'm still stuck behind this person. I can't figure out how to put the oranges on the counter. And I'm getting agitated because my heart is screaming, I have to have my way. i got to get through before all these people. It's a lie. I don't have to have my way. I get even discouraged in my own Christian life because I think, man, I should be farther along than this by now. I shouldn't be still struggling with the same stuff that I'm struggling with now. And I get frustrated and discouraged, which is just my heart screaming, I have to have my own way, even when it relates to the timing of how God is changing me. God changed me according to my plan. It's a lie. I don't have to have my own way. Here's a little free one for you, just as a sidebar for free. How much healing would uh, this bring into your roommate dynamics if you just believed with your roommate, I don't have to have my way? That one's free. So here's the last, here's the last phrase. Whatever humbles you as your friend, I don't have to have my own way. And then the last one is, The verdict is in. The verdict is in. That because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, if you are someone that has received that by faith, God has stamped this definitive, absolute, invincible verdict over you, which is righteous, forgiven, mine, beloved. That is the verdict over you. And it's invincible. And when you stitch that into your very soul, the verdict is in that frees you from stop, that frees you from having to prove yourself. It frees you from having to compete. It frees you to handle criticism because you're no longer threatened by it. 
Somebody critiques you, somebody's verdict of you comes in. Well, guess what? It doesn't override God's verdict of you. And so you can actually hear it. Hmm, that's interesting. You can, you can invite it, you can receive it. I don't know. These are three phrases that have been sort of anchoring truths for me that when my heart wanders, that I can recall to mind and just sort of bring back to where I need to be. So here's the last thought. Jesus is available to everyone in need. The gospel, the goodness of his grace is available to everyone that's in need. But the question is, do you have need? Are you humble enough to admit, I have need? If that's you, then come, ye sinners, to the deep well of grace that is in Jesus and drink deeply from it. That's the invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, would you be gracious to open up our eyes to see our need, to see that we are deeply flawed, that we have been breathing in the toxic fumes of our pride for too long and they've just become familiar to us. And maybe that's the reason why our life is spinning out of control. Maybe that's why we can't keep friendships. Maybe Maybe that's why confrontation and conflict are so visceral in our experience. Father, would you free us from ourselves? Would you rescue our hearts from their own hell-bent destruction and draw us to the open arms of a Savior that receives prideful, egomaniac, Messiah complexes like ourselves? I pray that you would heal us, humble us, and then set us on a path of the cross where we continually starve our pride and feed our humility so that we may drink more deeply of your grace and experience more life as a result. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.